There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ireland trains about 750 doctors each year. Hundreds of them emigrate to Australia and other countries. It's a situation that's contributing to the crisis in our emergency rooms this winter. But why do they go? Well, just listen to this description of what it's like to work in an overcrowded emergency department by retired consultant in emergency medicine, Dr Chris Luke. 50 yards of of a corridor of a big emergency department and there would be, say, 10 to 20 trolleys along that corridor. There would be seats on the opposite side of the, of the corridor wall. There would be people sitting in the seats, there were people on the trolleys, there were people in between, which meant that to try and walk from one end of the 20-yard or 30-yard corridor to the next would take several minutes to, to sort of, excuse me, excuse me, to squirm between the people and to say, oh, I'm terribly sorry, and all that. And you can imagine doing that every four minutes or every ten minutes or every hour as you're, mo- as you're going up and down and up and down and people are t- seeking your attention nurse, nurse, nurse my mother needs the toilet my mother needs the toilet or, or nurse, that man has just fallen off the- again, he's fallen off that, uh, and so on uh, so everywhere there is a fog of misery the waiting room a fog of misery people uh, agitated standing coming up repeatedly to the to people at reception is there any sign of the doctor any sign of the nurse uh, people kicking off if they're intoxicated uh, or if they're if they're head injured people bleeding on the corridor people fighting uh, people uh, verbally attacking the, the staff uh, people physically attacking the nursing staff then you get into the emergency department itself uh, you meet, uh, very often you meet an absolutely exhausted, pale and wan and often tearful nurse uh, and sometimes even a tearful doctor. And you realise this, this person is absolutely at their wit's end. They're already exhausted. So you've got really exhausted, often frightened nursing and medical staff on one side and you've got uh, often exhausted people who've been waiting for hours in an emergency department waiting room or on the corridor. You've got people running up and down. There's no possibility of sleep for anybody or proper rest. Many of the situations are actually diagnostically complicated and need a sort of quiet time of taking the history from the patient or the mother or the parent. And, uh, you know, of course, because of the, the growing number of tragedies and tragic misses and so forth, the staff are extremely sensitised to the possibility of making a mistake. So in addition to the physical uh, misery they're enduring, they're terrified of making a mistake. So you've got staff who are physically and mentally and spiritually exhausted and frightened and a sense of being abandoned. Overcrowding is not the only reason doctors leave. Like everything in healthcare, it's complicated. Today, I'll talk to Dr Luke to get his view on how we got here, 
why morale among doctors and nurses is at an all-time low and what can be done to fix it. Dr Chris Luke is a former consultant in emergency medicine at Cork University Hospital. He's also a columnist with the Irish Medical Times. Chris, you're very welcome to the podcast and thank you very much for joining us because it would be particularly valuable to gain your insight as somebody who has been working in EDs or I know you're you're clinically retired now but you have a, a long history of working in EDs and this is the crisis we're facing at the moment. I I have to start somewhere and I suppose um, what I might choose to begin with is Mary Harney in 2006 declaring that we had a national emergency with our trolley numbers and our, 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 our trolley crisis. Patients and their families are anxious to make sure that they get the best possible health service. Those that work in the system highlight the difficulties and the challenges and the problems and journalists do too. What would you say got us to that point? You know, the overcrowding of our emergency departments on both sides of the Irish Sea has been evolving since at least the mid-90s, although my first job in an emergency department was at St. James's Hospital in, in the inner city in Dublin, and, you know, that department was often massively overcrowded back in 1983. And, in fact, if you look at uh, the history of, of the healthcare system in, in Ireland, you'll, you'll read about uh, complaints about the shortage of acute beds in Dublin in the 1930s. You'll you'll read about industrial strife amongst doctors and nurses in the 1960s. So, you know, you really need to look back a long way to get a sort of sense of the the current trajectory. But at the same time, it's very, very important to look back because the the further back you look, the further forward you, you can see. What changes have you seen since Mary Harney made that particular announcement in 2006, notwithstanding the fact that Obviously, there was a long point to get to that juncture. Well, I think things have got relentlessly worse, to be absolutely honest with you. And, you know, I would, you know, there there was more than one or two things that I'm afraid Minister Harney got wrong. And, you know, I remember as a consultant in the IMO uh, consultant committee complaining bitterly about the outsourcing of of, of cervical smears to the states, for example. Uh, There was the due location of private and public hospitals on the same campus, which never happened, of course. Uh, and and I also think that one of the disastrous uh, in, interventions at that point was the was the 2008 consultant contract, which lit the fuse for the current standoff between, I suppose, the state and, and hospital consultants. The 2008 consultants contract set out rates of pay and working conditions, as well as rules around when and where consultants could treat private patients, including in public hospitals. It was signed after lengthy negotiations between the HSC and consultants, but it's been the subject of lots of criticism since, from advocates of healthcare reform and from the doctors themselves. A new contract for consultants to only treat public patients in public hospitals is under negotiation. I'm not sure if people are really aware of how unhappy consultants really are and consultant applicants are about the the, the legacy of that 2008 contract. As I wrote at the time, you know, the consultants in the UK and the NHS had been similarly straitjacketed a year or two previously to that. And the result of that, according to the, the you know, the Health Accounts Committee in Westminster, was that the work output of consultants had fallen by about a third 
2006, 7, 8 was the beginning of the, the loss of leadership amongst consultants who were so, uh, I suppose, um, frustrated uh, and despondent by the political approach to the consultants and their contract. And I sense generally that they, that they, they just they were held in very low esteem by, by the departments uh, of health on both sides of the Irish Sea and by the, and by the body politic. I suppose that's just one cog in the whole machine that has led us to where we are today as well. So if we if we focus on the EDs for the moment, which is obviously your area of expertise, what are the specifics, Chris, to your mind that need to happen? You've got to look some some way back, in, I'd say three or four decades to see why we've got where we are. And the fundamental reason reasons were a combination of uh, economics and politics, or I suppose politics first, because as far as I can work out, the politicians hired economists back in the 70s and 80s to tell them what they wanted to hear which was that because the the state in Ireland and the UK were were both struggling financially, you know, we had massive recessions in the 70s and the 80s and even in the early 90s, uh, and the state was struggling even back then to afford uh, public health care. So what the politicians wanted to hear back then was that we needed fewer beds. The economists that they hired gave them that verdict and said, oh yes, of course, we'll all be so efficient that there'll be so many robots uh, and so much will be done in the community and outpatients and, 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 and whatnot that uh, we, we won't need so many hospitals. Bed. So they absolutely devastated the, the, the bed stock without us even getting a second opinion, which is the equivalent of basically amputating a, a leg uh, without getting a second opinion. And basically, uh, we, we've never caught up. So as far as I know, we have fewer beds in 2023 than we did in the early 90s or even the late 80s, uh, which is the fundamental issue. Uh, then you have, I suppose, what you might call, again, another economic issue, which is the Americanization of, of, of healthcare which is where we are drifting towards a sort of um, an even more embedded two-tier system where you have a private healthcare sector which is self-evidently flourishing. I mean, you're basically at the situation now in Dublin where you're tripping over private emergency departments or private hospitals or private healthcare facilities and satellites, uh, whereas at the same time the public system is, is, is basically withering on the vine. Um, and then again, as I say, historically, there was the, the clo- closing off of all the other alternatives to uh, people being seen in in parts of the health system other than an emergency department. So now you've got this uh, single portal of access for the vast majority of people to the public system, which is the emergency department, which means that so many of the patients in the emergency department could be seen elsewhere. But has it not always been that way, like that there aren't enough alternative ways into the system? Or have we declined in that respect too? In the last 30 or 40 years, uh, there has been a gradual picking off of all the options or all the alternatives to an emergency department attendant, such as rapid access to outpatient clinics for general practitioners, uh, referrals straight to a surgeon or a physician's ward. I mean, when I was a young a young medic in the 80s, uh, for example, working in Wexford or in Lachlanstown or even in St. Vincent's, uh, the GP in Bray or uh, Wicklow or in, you know, in Rosslare could ring their friend or their comrade or their 
former classmate, the surgeon or physician on duty and say, look, John or Mary, I've got this patient. I think she's a classic case of appendicitis. Could you have a look? Or a classic uh, flare-up of their uh, emphysema. Could you have a look? And back in those days, the, 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 the consultant would say, that, that's, that's grand, David. Uh, look, will you just send them to St. Mary's or to the respiratory ward and I'll see them there? Uh, and that worked very, very well and was a very convenient and very comfortable arrangement for, for general practitioners. But, but gradually that, that that arrangement stopped uh, and increasingly the emergency department became the only portal of access to the to the health service and that of course is the primary cause of the overcrowding the emergency department has now become all things to all men so now we see all the homeless we see the, all the addicted, flare-ups of chronic disease, people waiting for months or years on waiting lists for scans or a consultant opinion, and, and increasingly, there's young people who can't get access to a general practitioner. And again, you know, these are my, my observations are based on both experience and, and the literature. And for example, the literature suggests that in the UK and Ireland, that increasingly uh, the younger generation goes straight to an emergency department because you know they're, they're sort of cutting out the middle man or the middle woman in, in general practice. Why are these younger people going straight to the ED? For some of them, it could be because they have no other option. That's because there's a growing shortage of GPs. Last year, the Irish College of General Practitioners told the Dáil Committee that Ireland has more than a thousand fewer GPs than it needs. Of the GPs we do have, 500 are nearing retirement. We cannot meet the current or future GP workforce or workload demands. We're not adequately resourced to meet current or future patients' clinical needs. GP practices are busier than ever, but less able to find replacements for retiring GPs or new GPs to expand their practices and deal with growing workloads. The middle-aged, uh, near-retirement-aged GPs who are re- actually due to retire in huge numbers over the next couple of years, as well as the ones who are retiring early because they're so burnt out and so exhausted. And, you know, it's important that your listeners appreciate that, you know, I, I have many GP friends who are unable to take a day off for a, an, an offspring's wedding because they simply cannot get any locum or any cover. So the situation is really, really dire in many parts of the general practice uh, world. Just before Christmas, a 16-year-old girl, Aoife Johnston, died of meningitis in University Hospital Limerick. She'd spent hours on a hospital trolley waiting to be seen. The adverse event, which we would call it, that will be investigated in line with the national HSE policy and we will follow the incident management framework. The tragedy came months after dozens of doctors at the hospital wrote a letter to the Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly, warning about dangerous overcrowding. Tragedies like what happened to Aoife devastate families, but they also have a hidden impact on the health system. When you hear of a tragedy, of a tragic avoidable death, or what seems to have been an avoidable death in our emergency departments, you, you obviously see the anger of the bereaved family, but you need to also see the, 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 the heartbreak and the fear uh, amongst the staff who have predicted that these things will happen and have seen it happen and will then be caught up in the aftermath, the forensic inquiry, the inquest, the public potential humiliation, the scapegoating, despite the fact that they've been begging publicly and privately for years for the resources to avoid these scandals and these tragedies. So you have to understand that 
that fear gradually becomes an anger. Uh, and I already mentioned the anger amongst consultants that began really, it began in the early noughties, but it was really crystallized by the contracts that were foisted upon them on both sides, which straightjacketed them. And it's kind of confirmed the animosity of the state towards the, the hospital consultant body. But shouldn't the anger lead to change, Chris? That's what I don't understand. Like, it, it, you know, that, that anger that you're talking about crystallizing, that should be... That should be the fire in the belly to make the change. Where, where does, where do you run into problems with? Well, with I mean, I mean, I'm a great believer in anger because it drove me for years. And anger, as uh, Mr. Lydon, Mr. Rotten said many, many years ago, anger is an energy. But I, I can, and I can really speak from personal experience. Anger, when it's sustained and enduring and unremitting, is profoundly corrosive. Because it, make, it, it, it burns the person up, it gives them blood pressure, it gives them heart disease, it gives them stress and burnout. It also makes them difficult to work with, it makes them unpopular, uh, both with their colleagues and their managers and, and all the rest of it. Because, you know, burnt out people become, I'm afraid, there's a callousness which, which occurs with, 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 with sustained anger. So that's why I always caution about getting too angry. Anger, yes, in the short term is a very good driver of change. But, you, but the thing is, Aideen, you now have manifest the changes that have occurred as a result of decades of anger. And they are manifest in the hundreds of Irish doctors that were photographed on the beach in Western Australia over the Christmas, uh, congratulating themselves on not working in, in the Irish health system. And you've now got the manifestation in the 900 consultant vacancies. That's the change, because th- there has been an organic response to the anger, which is saying, I can't put up with this anger. I cannot be angry all the time. I've got to go work somewhere different. And that's partly one of the reasons why you've seen the private sector flourishing, because I think a lot of graduates, a lot of medics, are, see it, it, that they can have a much more con- um, contented and productive and less toxic existence in a private sector, which for me is heartbreaking because um, for years I loved doing what I did in the public sector. And, you know, emergency care can be and should be profoundly uh, satisfying, profoundly rewarding and profoundly profoundly meaningful and of course you know most medics like every other human being are looking for a meaning uh, in their existence uh, as well as autonomy and complexity and all the other good things that you, you get from good work. So how do we create a system where we have the conditions okay the lifestyle stuff set aside because obviously Australia is a much sunnier place than Ireland but how do we create the conditions that they have in Australia here the first thing that politicians and civil servants have got to do is to stop fueling the anger and the anger is fueled by endless platitudes and endless suggestions that doctors and nurses aren't working hard enough you know these oblique references to absenteeism i mean that's shocking oblique references to consultants not being available or working out of hours that's shocking because If the civil servants or the politicians spent an evening in our public hospitals, they'd see consultants everywhere. But if you're a patient in a waiting room, you'll not see a consultant until you are seen by a consultant. Uh, 
It's a bit like the anti-vaxxers who took cameras into hospitals in London and, and, and New York into the, into the corridor and saying, well, I didn't see anybody with COVID and I did, or, you know, or, you know, brackets, I didn't see any consultants. You know, the point is that the consultants who are in at night, they're there for a reason, they're there in theatre because they're trying to get, catch up with the backlog for the day or the backlog in the waiting list, or the consultants in emergency medicine are in the emergency department resource room, the bit, the pointiest end with the sickest and most badly injured patients, the consultants in an anaesthesia and intensive care are in the theatres or the intensive care units. So it's really, really important that people also recognise that absenteeism in the population is... the, the, The medical absenteeism is one of the lowest rates of absenteeism in in the state. And that has got to be acknowledged. Doctors rarely take time off. And we've heard the opposite, or at least it's been implied in the last few days that somehow doctors are busy doing something else, whether, I mean... I, I presume they're not going to even say golfing or, you know, private practice, whatever, because, you know, of course there are doctors on golf courses and in private practice, but they're generally not doctors working in the front-facing health sector. Coming up, SWAT teams in EDs, hospital CEOs sent to the front line and a citizens' assembly on healthcare. So, Chris, you were talking there about that that animosity that's been created. But I suppose what else is going on that we cannot create good conditions for doctors here? Is it merely the shortages? Because it feels like we're throwing money at the system. So resources shouldn't be an issue. We have vacant posts. But if we could get the doctors, we could we could fill those posts. What's the answer? Leadership is the most important thing. I mean, if you look at uh, President Zelensky, who was faced potentially in February of last year with an overwhelming threat, he uh, demonstrated the sort of leadership that we need now. We need inspiring leadership that doesn't alienate those at the front line doing their best. Almost all the solutions have been set out time and time again. Whether you, you take Sláinte Care as the model you prefer or whether you take the, the vision for, for change for, for mental health, which is, has been set out repeatedly over the last 15 years, or whether you look at the remedies set out by the Irish Association for Emergency Medicine. So in a nutshell, here we are. You divert non-emergency patients to more useful or more suitable outlets. For example, uh, rapid access uh, GP clinics for uh, every conceivable issue, whether it be chronic disease, sports injuries, uh, or whether it be for minor injuries like, uh, you know, ankles and wrists uh, and minor wounds, which are best seen, by the way, uh, for the most part. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. 
For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In local injury units such as, for example, Grona Broher or in St. Vincent's or the, the, in the Matter injury unit uh, there near in Smithfield. Uh, and they're wonderful. Uh, we just need more of them with more staff. We need more beds. And the bed situation in hospitals is the same with the bed situation for the homeless. We need radical, flexible, you know, if necessary, we need modular buildings, you know, that are factory made, you know, churn them out. So because we need a couple of thousand beds, hospital beds, as urgently as we need several thousand, you know, uh, residential beds for the homeless. Then, of course, nursing home beds. We need to incentivize the staff. So uh, in addition to treating them with compassion and consideration and respect, and that's where I go back to the anger thing, where the anger comes from, uh, we need to incentivize them. So I've said this for years, you know, uh, emergency department staff are often working in the hardest circumstances, the most fraught circumstances uh, of all healthcare staff, uh, and very often uh, they're the least well remunerated. They're often working in departments where they can't, they have to find the bed themselves, they have to find a chair themselves, they have to ring the kitchen for a sandwich for the, for the patient, they have to clean the toilet, they have to clean the floor. So uh, we need SWAT teams in every emergency department where the team is dedicated to the care of the staff so that the patients and the, the staff in the emergency department can look after the patients in the emergency department. So we must not squander precious uh, expertise uh, by having nurses and doctors who are trained to provide emergency care, uh, having to uh, do the tidying and the stocking and the sourcing and the pleading and all that sort of stuff. All that should be done by a, a, a sort of a logistics backroom team within the department. Uh, we need to, I think, look seriously at incentivizing staff in the emergency department by paying them, uh, paying them in a way that recognizes that they're doing much, much harder, much more complex and much more intensive work than many other people in, in the health sector. I think that's got to be recognised. Chris, you would like a citizens' assembly to discuss all these issues. What are the things that need to come on the table that we, we need to talk about? What are the sacred cows and what, what are the potentially controversial flashpoints that we need to flesh out? Well, I... <sighs> I've been reading a book recently by Gillian Tett, who's an anthropologist, who has talked about the use of anthropology recently with big tech and power manufacturing firms. Basically, these are non-staff people, observers, who go into, for example, an emergency department or a theatre to observe dispassionately the actual culture of, of the department and report dispassionately back to those in charge. Because I am convinced that those in charge have no idea what's really going on. I, I, and until they understand the anger and the fear that are driving staff down under or across the water or over to America, uh, they have no chance of sorting the problem. So that's the number one thing they have to do. Then they need to do an audit of who should and who should not ideally be in the emergency departments, probably by, again, possibly uh, teams brought in from out of the state, because, again, I think there are so many vested interests here. So non-union, non-civil service, non-political people coming in to to look uh, dispassionately at who might and might not be seen elsewhere uh, in an emergency department. And we're talking, obviously, about to justify the creation of facilities for the homeless, facilities for the the, uh, the addicted, 
facilities for the uh, uh, people with mental health in, the, in their teenage years, uh, people who have long-term issues with a flare, for example, a flare of inflammatory bowel disease, a flare of their chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, and on and on it goes. We, we already know, we've known for 25 years, that paediatrics should be seen separately from adults, and we increasingly know that care of the elderly, uh, elderly emergency departments should be separate from those serving people, for example, under the age of 60, because uh, both children and the very elderly are very frail and very vulnerable and they need, uh, they al- it's almost as if they need particular sensory rooms. Uh, you know, you were aware of sensory facilities for those who are neurodivergent, uh, but we also need similar thinking in terms of provisions for paediatrics uh, and for, uh, for, for geriatrics, if you want to use that phrase, uh, care of the elderly. But I do think that the People's Assembly would be a very useful potential remedy because there is so much anger there is so much animosity between the different parties uh, that I think we need a neutral uh, review and audit of this extraordinary dysfunctional soup. Uh, and I'm, I suppose I'm just... Uh, what I'd love to see is for the population at large to understand why the emergency department cannot be expected to look after every ailment and every illness. The people... People's Assembly, I think, needs to look at what it is that we expect and want and are prepared to, to fund in terms of what our emergency departments do. Left to their devices, if the emergency department staff were able to do the job for which they have trained and to which they aspired, we would get wonderful, really, truly world-class emergency care. But so long as we ask emergency department staff to run a general waiting ward, a general waiting list facility, an addiction service, a homeless facility, and on and on and on, they cannot but fail to, to, you know, be 100% effective in looking after or even spotting cases that are genuinely time critical. And finally, the leadership that you mentioned there, where does that come from? I mean, I think the obvious answer is the Minister for Health, but the Minister for Health changes every five years or even less, you know. Does the leadership come from the hospital CEOs? Who is that person? Well, I have been on the record, Aideen, for over 20 years citing the Blair Brown initiative in the UK, in the NHS, in the very early noughties, I think it was 2000, 2001, when they made the chief executive and the medical director of all the great big NHS hospitals responsible for sticking to a four-hour target for a patient's journey through and out of an emergency department in the UK. And I worked in the UK for 14 years and it was a massive transformation. Uh, It was a political decision. And it was resourced and it worked for the, the, be- the best part uh, of a decade. And we need to see the same here. We need to have leadership from uh, the medical directors and the chief executives. And we've sort of had it over the, the last number of years intermittently, erratically. But, for example, during a, a period when an emergency department of a major hospital in this country, in this republic, is, in commas, overwhelmed... I would expect and I would I would say that the hospital's chief executive should be in that overwhelmed ED every single day, seeing for themselves, seeing for herself and himself, what can my team do logistically to support our overwhelmed and harried and exhausted emergency department staff? Can I find the beds? Can I find the chairs? Can I make sure the catering is sorted? Can I make sure the toilet is working? 
When I heard uh, coverage, uh, the story of one patient from a a hospital last week uh, talking about how there was one toilet working for dozens and dozens of sick and elderly uh, patients and their companions on a long corridor for days and days at a time, I was absolutely enraged. And I tell you something, Aidan, I try not to get too angry, but that sort of thing makes me angry because if I say... If it isn't the chief executive's responsibility to fix that broken toilet, does she or he genuinely expect the nursing staff and the, and the, the doctors and all the other staff within an emergency department to stop looking after a patient on the trolley or in the recess room or in the triage or in the waiting room and try and fix the toilet themselves? We would need accountability as well because you need to compel the CEOs to, to do exactly what you're no, saying. No, that's there. what I said. I'm sorry. I used the word sanction. What I meant was people, uh, chief executives and medical directors were sacked when they failed to, to meet those targets. Uh, some, when the chief executives and the medical directors of a hospital in the NHS saw what was happening uh, by way of penalty for, for failure to, to stick to the four-hour target, uh, the culture changed dramatically and rapidly and sustainedly. I, I, I have to say that the, the, the main reason for a chief executive to visit their emergency department if it is overwhelmed every day is a moral reason. The analogy I use over and over again is if, if a large ship went to ground... Uh, and the crew spent hours and then days trying to, to get it off the rocks, I would expect the captain of the ship to have visited by the second day at least, if, if, you know. Whereas in reality, in my experience over many years, sometimes it was a week or two before the captain uh, came down to see what was happening down where the ship was aground. Dr Chris Luke, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Aideen. That's it for today. This episode was produced by Declan Conlon. In the News will be back on Friday. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> <laughs> 